welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Uh, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you, a holy and righteous judge, and yet in Christ our Father. Father, we just thank you for the righteousness of Christ, that we stand before you. Those who, are, who know him, who trust in him, stand before you in the same perfection as his. Even though we don't deserve it, we are here as your children. You love us, you adore us. You're not ashamed to call us your children. We're so thankful for that. We just pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would move, Lord, that you would, even as Hebrews says a little bit later, that you would display the powers of the age to come among us, that we would be so moved by your spirit, so moved by the power of your spirit through your word, through the gospel, that we'd be transformed, Lord. We think of Moses when he came down off the mountain, he was glowing, and Lord, we're not looking for a physical glow, but Lord, we would love to glow with joy and peace and hope and boldness, a kind of humble joy as we share the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, with those around us. So we pray, Lord, that you would make much of your son Jesus this morning. We pray, too, for all the faithful churches that are even right near us here in Menifee. Think of, like, Impact Church, so thankful for them. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them this morning. Um, we pray that you would bless Faith Bible Church Menifee and the preaching there and, uh, and the fellowship there. We pray, for Lord, for revival, Lord, that you continue to make them faithful as they have been to the gospel. We uh, thank you for the View Church and for Canyon Lake Community and for many, many others of your churches that are they're holding fast to the gospel and, and, Lord, serving the community with the truth. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would empower them and their gathering together as well. And, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would make this a time of just great transformation, great healing, great change, Lord, that we would see your son Jesus and not be the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage has really got something to teach us about humanity. What should we think about humanity? What should we think about what it means to be human? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to be human? These are like very fundamental questions, and I know you might be like, I did not come here for anthropology, but you've got it. There's a biblical anthropology here. These particular questions are so important. We think about these questions every day. You don't realize you do probably, but you're thinking every day about what it means to be human. It helps to know how to treat other people. It helps to know how to live. Any decent worldview should have very clear answers to the questions of what does it mean to be human? What would make humans better? You know, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be a human being? And, you know, those kinds of questions. Questions like, uh, should we worry about overpopulation? You know, is it a problem to have more humans? Or should we welcome as many new humans into the world as we can? Maybe this hits a little closer to home with you. What should we think about crowds? What should we think about densely populated cities? More people, the better, right? Maybe that one hits home. Higher concentration of humans, is it a good thing? Does the earth belong to humans to cultivate, or are we kind of parasites on the planet? That's a question we ask a lot, right? What about our cultural products? You know, human beings make art and literature and uh, technology and architecture and all these kinds of things. Are they a good thing or a bad thing? These are the kind of questions we actually think about a lot. Our culture seems to give us a mixed message about how to think about people. Okay? If you've got a worldview and it's defective on who people are, that's a very defective worldview. 
Okay, because it's really important to know because our culture gives us mixed messages about it. Sometimes we're told by our culture that we're like gods. And sometimes we're told that we're like garbage, right? We get mixed messages from our culture. We're told that we're like gods when our culture tells us that we have the right and power to create our own reality, right? To define our own identities, to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. That's something only gods do. And yet we're told, that's you, do that. But then at the same time, the culture seems to tell us that we're garbage. <laughs> we shouldn't really be on this planet, that we're just making things worse, and we're kind of a burden to everybody around us. Um, have you noticed how much people apologize just for no reason? Especially at Starbucks. You know, it's like you take the order, they apologize. You get the coffee, they apologize. They just apologize all the time. Have you ever met anybody like that? They're just constantly apologizing? Sometimes you should stop him and go, like, exactly what are you sorry for in this moment? Because people will say sorry all the time. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. It's like, what exactly are you sorry for? Are you sorry for existing? You know, and I almost get that sense, like, I'm just in the way, you know? I'm just a problem for everybody, right? Guys, the Bible tells a much better story about humanity than our culture does. It does a much better job of explaining what we actually see in people, and it has much better solutions for the problems of this world and for the problems in ourselves. And the Bible tells what humans are in a story. It's really cool. And the story, as we trace it through this morning, we're going to see that humans were created glorious, fallen into sin, but in Christ redeemed. And so that's kind of the flow of what we're going to see this morning. First, humanity was created glorious. Look at verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now he's quoting there Psalm 8. And he's not yet talking about Jesus. Okay, he's going to talk about Jesus in verse 9. This part that he's quoting from Psalm 8 is just about humanity in general. It's a very exalted picture, right, of humanity in general. Verses 5 through 8 are about humanity in general, quoting Psalm 8. Um, and what it basically tells us is there's nothing better to be than to be a human. When you were a kid, did you play the game like, what kind of animal would you want to be? Did you guys play that game? You know, you think about what kind of animal. There's nothing better to be in all of God's creation than human, it turns out. It, it turns out that we were destined for glory. Look at verse 5. It says, It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. We, human beings, are the true rulers of the world to come. You think, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and remember, the original context here, the original readers were a little bit excessively enamored with angels, weren't they? And so he says, there's no point in being enamored with angels. It's actually the humans that have been given rule over the world to come. Verse 7 says that human beings were made for a little while lower than the angels, so we're destined for glory. We were created for glory. Look at verse 7. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Remember back to Genesis 1? You remember the, the, this glorious act of human creation where God created man in his image, it says? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. No other creature in all of creation, guys, is said to be made in God's image. Right? Human beings are special in that way. We're created for the glory and honor of being his special image bearers. We were made to be like little reflectors that God's glory would shine down upon us and would shine out to the world. 
Like we were meant to be the kind of creatures that one another would see us, the angels would see us, and when they saw the goodness and the, the, the righteousness and the wisdom of human beings, they'd say, man, there must be a really good God in this world. Because look at his image bearers. Like that's what we were made to do. The image of God, guys, gives us a right view of ourselves. It corrects our culture, right? We're neither gods nor garbage. We're not gods. We're in the image of God, right? That means we're not God. So we don't have the right to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We don't have the right to decide our own identity and, you know, to create our own reality. That's a God job. We are not gods. We're in the image of God. But it also shows us you are certainly not garbage because you're an image bearer of God. And this makes every single human being extremely valuable, right? Extremely valuable. And this is something that the Bible teaches fits every single human being. No matter how good or bad they are, they're in the image of God. No matter how um, able they are to do things or how disabled they are to do. Whether they're, you know, super tiny, not yet able to do anything, or really old and hardly able to do anything. Whatever race, whatever nationality, no matter who they are, they're made in the image of God. It's a picture of human worth that's beyond anything our culture has. We actually have no good reason, if the story is just naturalistic and there is no God and there's no image of God, we have no good reason to treat each other with dignity, especially if other people don't treat us with dignity, right? But because we're made in the image of God, human beings are of just a massive worth. Guys, you guys realize we're God's favorite creatures. And I know there's angels here in this, and they know it's true. But we're God's favorites. It says in verse 16 that he doesn't even offer salvation to angels. He doesn't give help to angels right? We're his favorite creatures. We were made for covenant relationship with him. We're made to be his sons and daughters. You know, when you go back to Genesis 2 and you see how God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and then blows his spirit into him and makes him alive, right? He's making a covenant creature to be his child, and you can see in Genesis 2, he doesn't leave him alone, right? He like puts him down there, but then he, it's kind of like, you know, when you have a new baby and you want to like peek in and take a look at him, he's constantly coming back and messing with them and wants to be with them, right? We were made to be his sons and daughters. We were also created to rule. Look at verse 8. He put everything in subjection under his feet. This is kind of interesting. So Hebrews is talking about Psalm 8, which is talking about Genesis 1. It's like a Russian nesting doll of verses, you know, but He's pointing back to Genesis 1:28, where God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And then the Lord put the man and the woman in the garden to cultivate and to keep it, right? So we've been made, guys, as human beings to steward and cultivate the world, right? To cultivate it. You know, like they were in a garden to cultivate it, not to destroy it, not to put pavement over the entire thing or something, but to cultivate it, like a really well-cultivated national park, like Zion National Park. That's a really beautiful picture of what we're to do with creation. You know, put a tram in, you know, make some trails, you know, but leave it beautiful, you know, cultivate it. That's what we're called to do. We're called to steward and cultivate the world and create a culture in this world that serves our neighbor and serves God and glorifies him. So all our cultural products of the art and literature and, and architecture and science and technology, all these things are a part of us creating this God-honoring culture. I know it doesn't always work out that way, but that's what we're after, is a God-honoring culture, something that would dis that serve our neighbor, bless our neighbor through all the things that we do, and also glorify him. We were created to rule. Verse 8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So how should we think about being human? There's nothing better to be than to be a human being. The God spot's taken, okay? 
There's nothing better to be than to be human. We were created for honor and glory and rule. And you might say to that, okay, that sounds great. I like the idea. But it just doesn't look like it's going that way. Did anybody notice that? You're like, it doesn't seem to be like that. And you know what? He noticed it too. Look at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He sees it too, right? He's like, yeah, there's something's happened. What is that something? Something went wrong. Something went wrong. Instead of humans having glory and honor and rule, what we see in this world is sin and suffering and evil and death. Now, I need to insert this part of the story because he doesn't do it here because he assumes we know it, which we do know it, but I'm going to remind you guys of what went wrong. What went wrong is the fall. Those first human beings, Adam and Eve, they fell. They fell morally from their place of glory and honor. They believed the lies of Satan. You can see that in Genesis 3. They rebel against God, and they handed over their rule, which God had given them to, to rule the earth under, under him. They had given over that rule to the enemy. They let Satan and sin and suffering and death into the world. So that's what happened. That's why it doesn't right now look like everything's in subjection to man, right? And this explains a lot. And I, I don't think you guys even realize how much a biblical worldview explains what the world actually looks like. Like we have the best possible explanation for the data or data if you prefer and are wrong. <laughs> guys, the fall, listen to this. The fall explains how people can be so wonderful and yet so wicked. You need an answer to that, you know? Because on the one hand, you like, you read the news, you're like, people are so evil. And then you're like, but I, there's so many wonderful people. Like, what's going on? Well, what's going on is human beings were created glorious and yet are fallen in sin. The fall explains why we expect the world to be better than it is. That's a weird thing, guys. It's weird that we look at the world and we go, this isn't right. Why isn't it right? You know, if you believe a naturalistic story and you believe that you're just here because the strong ate the weak over generation after generation, when you see the strong eating the weak, it shouldn't bother you. It's your creator, right? But it bothers us. Why? Somehow we have deeply embedded in our hearts and our minds that the world was once different than this. How is that? Now, even unbelievers know that. They know that, like, this isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. How do they know that? God's implanted in our hearts that at one point it wasn't like this. And that maybe, just maybe, at some point, it won't be like this again. You know, we know this isn't normal, even though it's been our only experience. The fall also explains why we're plagued with the sense that we broke the world. Okay? Humans are very guilty creatures. We all have this sense that we did something that broke the world. Right? Think about it in news stories and stuff. Think about it. Like, it's a very common narrative in our time that we broke the world. We know we broke something. Our cultural stories tell us this. Our cultural stories tell us that, that somehow humanity at some point let something evil out that's stronger than us. You think about the old myth of Pandora's box, right? Pandora's given this gift, a beautiful box on her wedding day, and the gods say, like, don't open it, okay? And, you know, she opened it, right? And all this evil comes out. It's in our stories. Think about Jurassic Park. We let something evil out that's stronger than us. You think about Planet of the Apes. You think about Stranger Things. We have this story playing over and over again. In our cultural consciousness, we know we did something bad, and we let something evil out, and we can't put it back in the box. Isn't that interesting? We know. The whole world, and even your own consciousness, tells you that this story of the fall is true. No longer are human beings reigning over God's world, 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection. We don't see humans reigning. We see Satan reign. We see suffering reign. We see death reign. We see sin reign. We don't see the reign we should see. We're no longer masters over the world. We're no longer even masters over ourselves. You know, I mean, if you honestly you look at the world, you say, man, the world's so chaotic and, and broken and stuff like that. But then you got to admit that you see it in yourself too. You're a little bit out of control too, especially sometimes, right? And sin creeps in. And so, guys, the bottom line here is that we need a savior, right? We need a savior. Unless you guys have another solution to this problem. We could do it right now. Do you guys have other solutions? You have solutions to Satan, sin, death, and suffering. You're like, well, I, have, you know, I could do a few of those maybe, maybe one. Got a partial solution to this. We don't have a solution, guys. We need a savior. We need a savior. We can't solve this problem. We can't put sin back in the box. We can't even get sin out of our box, right? We need a savior. So here's what God, the one who we sinned against, by the way, did to save us from all this. God became a man. Guys, this is amazing love. Like when, you, when we read all this, don't miss the love in this. Like all that Jesus, all that God the Son went through for us, it would be far easier to just get a new one. You know what I mean? You, you make a creation, they rebel against you, they let all this evil out. You spoke the world into being in the beginning, just get a new one, right? But what is this? This is covenant love. When you have covenant love, you don't just get a new one, right? Husbands and wives, you don't just get a new one, right? This is covenant love. He has covenant love for us. And what does he do? Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." Okay, so this is a, a picture of what Jesus has done to fix the problems of this world, to fix our problems of sin. But by the way, it's in reverse chronological order, if you'll notice. Verse 9 has his exaltation, then his death, then verse 10 has his suffering, and then 11 has his incarnation. So it's actually in reverse chronological order. He's reigning now, and by the way, this is all the stuff he did. I want to unroll it the other way and go in chronological order. So the first thing he did is the son became a human being, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That one source is humanity. God the Son became a human. Um, let me ask you this. When's the last time you tried to convince somebody that Jesus really is human? Anybody do that recently? Anybody take a... Well, the first couple centuries after the Bible, that was actually a hot button topic. It was like God could never become a human. Like he would never stoop to that. It, you know, the physicality is gross. It's, it's corrupted and God would never become a man. But guys, when we think about it, his, his humanity is just as amazing as his deity, isn't it? So the first chapter of Hebrews has some of the most powerful verses on Jesus's deity, right? And then chapter two has some of the most powerful verses on his humanity. Isn't that beautiful? I laid them right next to each other. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same. Flesh and blood. Don't you love how he just gets so, like, we're not talking like he kind of looked like a man, and, you know, he kind of sounded like one, but he wasn't really human. Flesh and blood, right? 
just like us. Verse 17 said, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And, and I know I mentioned this before, but we, it bears repeating. Jesus is a real human being, is, by the way, still, both God and man, still a human being. And human, not just on the outside. I feel like this needs to be repeated a lot because this is what we think. Oh, I get it. He's God on the inside and human on the outside. No. He's God and he's human on the inside and outside. He had a real human heart. He still does, by the way. Shouldn't use past tense. Real human mind, real human heart, real human soul. Felt like and feels like still a human on the inside. Isn't that amazing? You know, this is probably part of the reason why I was so hotly debated, right? Jesus is both God and man. He's two natures, but one person. Isn't that amazing? And then he suffered. He became a man so he could suffer. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, this is interesting. Does that like freak you guys out? Jesus being made perfect in some sense? So he's made perfect in suffering. Not that he was made morally perfect. He's never sinful. But he was made perfect in the sense that he lived a full life of obedience, suffering to be obedient, so that he could be our Savior. This, this suffering is his whole life suffering. As he endured temptation, as he, as he gave perfect obedience. You know, I, I mentioned it before, but like, he could not have died as a baby, right, to be our Savior. Because he needed to live a full righteous life to give us his perfect righteousness. Because we didn't need just baby righteousness, right? You guys probably weren't worried about getting baby righteousness. You're probably like, oh, when I was a baby, I was probably fine. You weren't, but you, you think you were, okay? We needed a whole life of righteousness, and so he lived a whole life. He, he suffered to do this. He suffered as he was obedient. And notice that Jesus suffered as in every way that we do. We can never say to God, you don't know what this is like. You know, God doesn't know my pain. God knows our pain and our suffering from the inside. From the inside. Not just like he knows a lot about it. He's experienced it. Look at verse 18. For he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You guys realize temptation, you guys do realize actually, temptation is extremely painful if you resist it. <laughs> you guys notice that? You know, as temptation piles on, resistance is actually quite painful. And what Jesus did is through his entire life resisted temptation. He resisted the entire time. He knows the pain and the suffering involved with remaining faithful to God. And he is able to help you because of that. And then Jesus died. The verse 9. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is so powerful. He suffered death so that he might taste death for everyone. Um, physical death is a symbol of something far worse. Uh, in Revelation, it calls that something far worse, the second death. So there's physical death. Physical death is a symbol of something much worse, the second death, eternal wrath of God. It's a picture of hell. That's what the first death is like. It's a symbol of a worse death. On the cross, Jesus took both physical death and the second death, God's wrath for us. Isn't that amazing? How do I know that? Verse 17 says that Jesus made propitiation. You guys familiar with that term? Propitiation. It means to turn away wrath. It means to appease. And so what Jesus did on the cross, what God did on the cross in Jesus, is he absorbed his own holy wrath. So God has very legitimate anger for our sin. Uh, God's wrath is not like our wrath. It's not out of control. It's not flying off the handle. 
It is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting opposition to everything against his law, everything that's evil. And what he did on the cross is his own wrath, which we deserved, he took upon himself. Isn't that amazing? He took it upon himself. And so Jesus defeated death. He defeated it so that now we only get the symbol. Like we'll still physically die. If we die before Jesus comes back, we're going to endure the symbol of physical death, but not for long. And it's not going to include the second death. Isn't that amazing? Death has been defeated. We will still endure the symbol, which is physical death, but not for long. He's going to raise us from the dead. And I think we need to like really meditate on this. And I was going to do a whole message on this, but then I realized like next week is Mother's Day. And then I was like, uh, I don't do a Mother's Day sermon, but I probably don't do a death sermon. You know, so it's like there are rules, you know. And I've done this a bunch of times where I've done like, like the wrong text on Mother's Day. Because we just preach through the Bible, and then it's like, ooh, that was probably not good. Because people bring their mothers, and their mothers don't normally go to church, and then they're like, oh, this is what church is like. You know, it's like, well, sometimes, yeah. So anyway. But guys, death is so defeated. This is so cool. That the New Testament authors often talk about believers who have died as fallen asleep. You notice that? First Thessalonians, Jesus did it have fallen asleep. It turns out that, that our life, even a long life, is so short, and our resurrected life is so long, that our death, when we look back on it, is going to look like a night's sleep. Isn't that amazing? He really has defeated death. It doesn't feel like it on this side. I mean, there's a real tendency for us to still fear death, and, you know, that's, I think, a very natural thing. But he says that he has defeated death, that, that when we look back on it, from here, and we look back on it, it's going to seem like a night's sleep. You remember when Jesus healed that, there was that little girl who had died, and Jesus raised her from the dead. Do you remember what he said to her? He said, Talitha kumi. It just means, little girl, wake up. Isn't that amazing? He said, wake up. Rise and shine. And she like, came to life. And guys, Jesus is going to do that when he comes back and raises people from the dead. He's going to say, wake up, kids. Rise and shine. It's going to seem like a night's sleep. Look at verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, he says here that somehow death is, has been something that the devil has used to intimidate us, to make us fear. You can think of even the, the original readers of this letter. They were intimidated through persecution. And, you know, the devil would have used the fear of death to make them compromise in following Jesus. Guys, there's a lot of things the devil tempts us to do out of fear, right? There's a lot of things the devil tempts us to do out of fear of death. But guys, not anymore. Not anymore. Death's been defeated. And, and I know that's a process to really believe that in your heart but you need to make it your aim to really believe this. And, and I don't think that happens just in one second or whatever. I hope that what I just said helped, that we're going to look back on it, it's going to be like a night's sleep. That's why the New Testament authors say, those who have fallen asleep, like, Jesus is going to come, wake him right back up again, right? But he has defeated death. He's defeated it, guys. We need to believe this. I currently believe this, okay? And I think about death every day, and I used to think about it every day in a dread way, but I don't now. And I don't, I hope that'll last. But right now, and just thinking about this text, like this seems so clear to me 
that all we get is we get the symbol of judgment. We don't get the judgment itself. And he's going to reverse it, guys. He's going to reverse it. And then it says that Jesus was exalted. So he, was, uh, he became a man. He suffered when tempted. He died for us. He tasted death for us. That's amazing too, right? That he would taste death for us. And then now he's exalted. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. What does that sound like? What previous part of the passage does that sound like? It's open book. Seven, right? So what does it sound like? It sounds like our original glorious human beings, right? That Jesus is now enjoying the glory and honor that human beings were created to have, and more, because he is God, right? But as a human, he's, he's reigning in heaven as the beginning of what humanity is going to be again. He's got our glory back. Isn't that amazing? He got our glory back. Jesus is the better Adam. Unlike Adam, Jesus did not, when he was tempted by Satan, passed the test. He was faithful, and he won back the world, right? He won back the world for us. His faithfulness won back the world. When he returns, he's going to make the world new. There will be no Satan or sin or suffering or death. All of Adam's failures and all of your failures, totally undone. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Notice that Jesus, in this passage, he's become one of us so that we could become one with him. He's become one of us so that Jesus' death is our death. Jesus' glory is our glory. Jesus' holiness is now our holiness. And Jesus' sonship is now our sonship. And I see that in verse 11. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. By the way, I do that because the Greek is adelphos, which actually means brothers and sisters. Let me start over. I'm not being woke, okay? I'm just being Greek. Okay. Verse 11. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That last part is really fascinating. It says here in verse 11, it says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This shame thing is really interesting because it was really interesting in their culture because this is a shame and honor culture, right? Shame played a really huge role in ancient culture, and it still does in some other cultures, like where Lorian's ministering right now. It's a shame-honor culture, same kind of idea. In a shame-honor culture, if a parent or a child or a sibling did something shameful that would bring shame on the family, you just disown them. You don't call them brother or sister anymore. You feel like, cut them off. You, like, I don't know who that person is, right? That's what they did. That's what they still do. Here's the thing. The fact that the holy God of the universe is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister shows how perfectly the cross has worked in making you holy. He's not ashamed of you. Quite to the contrary. It says he'll declare you know, it in the midst of the congregation. Isn't that amazing? Guys, this should be a huge help for those of you who deal with shame. And I know some of you do. You deal with shame for past sins and you've repented of, but you just feel ashamed. Guys, if God the Son is not ashamed of you, why are you ashamed of you? Do you know what I mean? Like, if God the Son is not ashamed of you, why should you be ashamed of you? Isn't that amazing? He's not ashamed to call us. Think about us. He's not ashamed of us. It's amazing. I love introducing my kids to people. Sometimes I'll take them to work with me and stuff. And I love just saying, like, this is my son, Mason. This is my son, Miles. This is my daughter, Ellie. You know, because I'm proud of them. Right? I like being associated with them. 
I'm so proud of him that I feel good being associated with him. You know, if Jesus is your savior, that's how he feels about you in spite of your sin. It's all been removed. He's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He'll say it proudly. He lets you wear his name, Christian, right? Like he's like, yeah, use that name. I'm not ashamed of you. Jesus has become one of us so that we could be one with him. Guys, trust in him. His death will be your death. His glory, your glory. His holiness is your holiness. His sonship is your sonship. This is all a gift. And I just want to say to any of you who haven't received that, you can just have that right now. You just say, Lord, I heard him talk about all these gifts that Jesus has purchased, and I want them. Can I have them? They'd be like, yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, Jesus died to give you these things. He is desirous this moment to give it to you. You don't have to, like, go out there and try and figure it out. That'd be a bad idea. Who knows what will happen to you? right? It'd be good to take care of it now. Take care of it here. Receive that gift now. And I want to say to those of you guys who, who believe this story, guys, you see how we have so much better story about humanity than the culture? <laughs> about what human beings are, you know? We're like made in God's image, you know? We're made to be his sons and daughters. What does the culture tell us about us? You're an accident, probably a very regrettable accident on the world, right? I mean, it can tell you other things. It also tells you like, hey, be your own God and define your own reality. Tell all those kind of things too. But think about the culture tells us about what we do with our guilt and our shame. There's no solution. There's no solution except in Jesus. Think about what it tells us about the future. You tell me, what does the culture tell us about the future of humanity? What do we have to look forward to? What? Destruction. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, there's a lot of causes for this, but people are like, man, Gen Z, they're so depressed. And it's like, well, you've been telling them the world's going to, you know, be destroyed real soon, that they're the reason, you know, that there's no God, there's no future for you, there's, there's no way of forgiveness. It's like, no wonder they're depressed. Like, you take away all their hope, you know? It's crazy. Guys, you have so much better story. I don't, I don't think you guys even realize, like, the wealth you have in knowing something about, like, what human beings are for. <laughs> you guys know these things. It's amazing, right? And I would just say to you, in your evangelism, when you're talking to neighbors and stuff, you don't always have to go directly to the gospel. It might be really interesting for them if you told them the whole story of humanity. Like, hey, do you know, do you know where I believe human beings came from and why they were created? And just tell the whole story. Glorious fallen, redeemed, you know, instead of just going to like, hey, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, like, tell them the whole story. It might be super compelling for them to hear it in the midst of the whole story. So, I want you to see one last thing before we leave, and I don't want you to miss the faith-building power of the but in verse 9. Okay, there's a but in verse 9. Take a look at it. But we see Jesus, and this is one of the great buts of the Bible, okay? There are multiple great butts of the Bible. If I write a book someday, it'll be like, great butts of the Bible. And one of the greatest but of the Bible is Ephesians 2.4. You know, all the depravity, and then it's like, but God, right? There's great butts of the Bible. This is a great but of the Bible, by chapter 2. But the gospel tells us, guys, that the world's going to be made right, that death will be defeated, that we're going to be raised to glory, that he sees us in holiness, that we're his sons and daughters. But let me ask you this. Where do we look for evidence of that? Where do we look for evidence of that? I mean, the world doesn't look under control. Far from it. Death certainly does not look defeated. I don't see much glory in myself, or much holiness, for that matter. And sometimes I don't feel like much of a child of God. How about you? 
Where do we look for assurance of this? Where do you look for evidence that all this is true? Do you look in yourself? Would that be a good place to look? Why don't you just take a good look in your heart? You know? Why don't you take a good look at your life and see if there's really good evidence of this in you? See it? Anyone depressed? Okay, that's not the place to look for evidence, right? Where do we look for evidences? Where does the book of Hebrews, where does the author of Hebrews tell us to look? Take a look at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Okay, here's the way this argument works. The fact that Jesus is reigning proves that he did everything he needed to do to make those promises come true, and it worked. It worked. That's why he's reigning. If it didn't work, he wouldn't be reigning like that. He's reigning because it worked. And I just say to you guys, I plead with you, you've got to look up. Okay? You've got to look up and see Jesus crowned in glory and honor, that he has done it all, that it worked. You won't find assurance for any of this by looking at yourself. You won't find assurance by seeing it in yourself. You only find assurance by seeing it all in him and knowing that he has done it all and that you're one with him by faith. So that all those things he earned are yours because you're one with him. You've got to look there. Death, defeated, glory, holiness, sonship, None of those things are believable by looking at yourself. I just say, like, you've got to look up. Child of God, you've got to look up. You've got to look up and see him. At present, we don't see everything in subjection, but we do see him. We don't see the world made right, but we do see him. We don't see death defeated, but we do see him. We don't see his glory yet, but we do see him. We don't see much holiness in ourselves, but we do see him. We don't see our sonship, our identity like we should, but we do see him. Let's pray. Jesus, we do see you. We see you crowned in glory and honor, receiving all the praise and glory that you should for facing death for us, enduring death for us, becoming a man and suffering and dying. And and Lord, we have our full hope staked on you. Jesus, we have our full hope staked on you. That on the final day, when we stand before the judgment, we are going to say, I'm with him. Look to him. He's my righteousness. He's my holiness. That's what we're going to say. We rest our whole selves on you. And we pray, Lord, that just seeing that will transform us, Lord. We pray that you would take away in this room, even now, Lord, even as people sit here, even as they worship, I pray you do a supernatural work of taking away the fear of death that came in here. I pray, Lord, that you would take away any shame, Lord, that people have carried around for a long, long time, even though you're, they're your people and, and you're not ashamed of them. I pray, Lord, that you would take away their shame. They would leave without it. And look back on this day and be like, I don't know, I left it somewhere at church. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to leave any legalism here. That we would no longer look to our own selves to to feel holy and righteous before you, but we would look to Jesus alone. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to leave any hopelessness here. It would come off of us knowing our amazing resurrected future and that this life is a tiny sliver of our lives. 
and that you've set all things right, Lord. I pray that you would give just immense peace and joy and hope, that your people would leave here with a humble joy that comes from the gospel, and then people would see it on us. They would feel it on us. And then we'd be able to tell them the great story of what you've done. We thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for this word. We thank you so much for this passage, the depths of which we just kind of scratched a little bit, but there's so much here, and we're so thankful. It just seems like you've overdone it in telling us all these things to, to strengthen us. And we just pray, Lord, that we'd be willing to consume it, to eat it, to drink it, to, to make it a part of our our spiritual bones, part of our hearts, part of our minds. It would just be the architecture of the inside of us. I thank you for doing that work by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.